Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. On this, our first episode, I'll be talking to my co-host, Sean Ang, about personal identity in the arts and his experiences as a classical musician of color. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on, even though this is going to be a home for you. Yeah, I love that. I'm so excited. I I am so excited that you are so excited. And it's, uh, as I'm finding, as we get started on this project, I'm, I'm realizing that you don't always record things in order or um, know when they're going to come out. So I think this is probably going to be the first interview that I release, but I don't know. So if that's the case, welcome to the first episode of Meaning What? Yes. Welcome, everyone. So let's get started with just a, an introduction about you and, and who you are and, and what your background is. Absolutely. Um, so in any relation to any formation of the word art, I've been playing violin since I was five or six. Um as every good East Asian child was that is a first-generation American, you were handed the instrument, and that was the instrument you had to play. Um, I, from as far as I can remember, there were a lot of tears. I wasn't really all that into it for the first year or so, mostly because I was being made to practice this piece of wood that I, I had no concept of. But I eventually fell in love with it. Um... I went to college. I really wanted to be a music major. I couldn't be a music major. So I went in being pre-med as the only predetermined path that you're allowed to be. Um, (laughs) That didn't go so great. So I did end up graduating with a bachelor's degree in violin performance, both because I loved music and both out of necessity for getting a bachelor's degree. And then since that, um, I've been working in the nonprofit world. I've been uh studying classical voice because you know despite that all i'm still thinking about maybe getting a master's degree in vocal performance everything about that is on hold as we (laughs) deal with the world ending um (laughs) so that's where we're at so now we're just gonna talk about art and complain about art yeah i mean this could save you from having to get a master's degree and if if i can do that for you um I will have done the one good thing I need to do to get into the the better afterlife. <laughs> but you're still going to submit yourself to getting a master's degree. I've come <laughs> I've come this far. I just have to write the thesis at this point. It would be silly not to. Um, <laughs> plus, I can flout those credentials to, <clears throat> I have to everybody and to all of our six listeners. Yes. Um. So why violin? I'm I'm curious about that because um, in our conversations and in conversations with other people, like I, there is this um, continuing strand of like somebody picks an instrument for you, mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious, like, is there a family connection to violin, or or was it like one of those things that it was like, here's an instrument that will get you into like good schools. This is what people want to see on a resume. Uh, It's a combination of all those things, I believe. My mom played piano growing up. So I think in some level, it was like, I did piano. I don't want him to do piano, maybe. Um, 
And I think I was in kindergarten or whatever. It was like Montessori school. So you know that weird system where you just play with blocks all day. But the Chinese <laughs> teacher there also was a violin teacher. So that just like coincided really well. And my mom said, I didn't want you to do cello because I didn't want to have to carry a large instrument. Right. So that's how we ended up at violin. And also it's like for a East Asian child, your option is piano or violin or cello. And maybe flute if you're a girl, just maybe. And I think, yeah, I think that's the only options you have really (laughs) traditionally. Right. It. I mean, it's just curious to me because, yeah. you know, in my own experience, most of the kids that I, I was in band in middle school um, mm-hmm. and most of us who were in band were playing instruments that our parents played, you know. So um, I picked up clarinet because we had a clarinet in the house and that yeah. was what was available. And then I switched to bass clarinet because I was the only boy playing clarinet and (laughs) that's devastating when you were an awkward 13 year old or whatever but clarinet is sexy that's the one wood instrument woodwind instrument i find sexy anyways and i've i've discovered that later and i've really regretted not getting to jazz clarinet because there's Mm -hmm. just there isn't enough instead i picked up guitar and thought that that was gonna be a a just like every other bearded white person ever i play the guitar (laughs) you know i'm just playing my part in society (laughs) isn't that so weird though we're already talking about like the concept of gender roles to instruments which is just like what why i mean yeah that it's so baked into um, everything to everything right and and especially one of the interesting things about the arts um, as somebody who is very invested in sort of critiquing all of these things, critiquing all of our institutions is that we, when I say we, I mean the art world in general view ourselves as very progressive. We see ourselves as very cutting edge culturally, but we fall into all of the same trappings um, as any, anything else in society. Um, so we immediately fall into conversations about gender and yeah race and whatever right Um, because art is inherently feminine in a way right yet we of course set up all institutions of power under cis white men even in art so huh and art has always been controlled by um at least outwardly presenting cis white men right Uh, oh i thought of you the other day so david and i are watching selling sunset on netflix which is just the most recent bravo terrible like trash kind of reality tv series but they're selling they're all real estate brokers selling houses in the beverly hills and one of their clients was they called it a street artist and it was a white guy who just drew like hearts on walls I guess, of, like, expensive hotels and stuff. And, you know, he had the budget for a $3 million house in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And I just thought of you, and I was like, street artist. It- interesting. That is, that's so deeply offensive. Um, <laughs> on so many levels. Well, no, because, like, I've I've met people who consider themselves street artists who are, like, doing really legitimately interesting work. Um, mm-hmm. 
that mm-hmm. skirts everything from uh you know all of all of our social conversations and legality and and all of it um right and, and that is that is such a perfect like reality tv show encapsulation of that here's this really this really good interesting thing that exists in the world we're going to refine it to this this one guy in beverly hills who can buy a three million dollar house and uh he is going to represent that and look we have an episode about an artist so but coming back to you um (laughs) so you play violin from age five right Mm -hmm. and and are invested in it enough i you said that there was some aspect of going to school that was just required um, that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, but you you studied violin in, you continued to study violin in college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you switch to voice? Did that start in, in college or was that kind of a later development? A little bit in the sense, like I sang in choirs, I did a cappella, I took some voice lessons. Did I really, do I really think I developed anything more than interest to while I was an undergrad? Not necessarily, but me, I think on a larger level, it was just burnout. Um, it felt perfunctory that I was playing violin on some level. I still loved it but it felt like an obligation. So I think I still wanted to be music making or like the only kind of art I feel comfortable feeling any ownership of making. But yeah, it just had to not be violent. So I think it was just a transition born out of where I was mentally. It was it was just like reaching out for anything else. And that was what you happened to find. Mm-hmm. Everything else is also too expensive. I don't have yeah. the time to learn another very expensive instrument. Right. I'm actually learning piano during quarantine, which is the one thing I've picked up that I'm finding great pleasure in doing. So and compliments a, a voice. Practice I can just well. be every singer songwriter ever. That's right. So are you performing? Were you performing before the pandemic, or because um, from what I remember you were looking at going into grad school, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, before the pandemic, I was auditioning for grad school. So there was some traveling with that and like prepping repertoire, but it was basically being in a little hole, just like blinders on learning material, desperately trying to memorize other languages. Um, And I had been playing some wedding gigs here and there, but I had been, hadn't been performing that much. And and it, it part of it is just like the mental energy and capacity to do so while working full time. I just don't have that magical capacity. Some people do to work essentially three or four major of like irons in the fire at once. And I find that just performing is so mentally, spiritually exhausting to do that. Right. It's like one hour performing as a violinist feels like as much emotional tax as one week of working at a desk. Right. Approximately. Right. It's a different sort of emotional and physical labor. Mm-hmm. Right. Have, have you felt a, a, a change with the pandemic of like, obviously it, it sort of shakes up one's direction and, and the sort of 
thing you can't travel for auditions and you can't graduate school becomes a whole different monster um <laughs> so you know in in talking to people about how covid has been affecting their careers like for some people it's really obvious right if they're in performing arts and they're actively performing like suddenly they can't do that anymore or if they're gallery showing there aren't any galleries open to to put stuff up in so mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm curious to hear like how as somebody who it sounds like is sort of in a transitional period in their career anyway mm-hmm. um how is this affecting it and do you see it as an opportunity or is it more of a new massive roadblock or some combination of the two mm. i think i've been feeling a lot of numbness about it especially maybe just the first i think well how i feel about it is you know no way to speak for everyone else i feel like it's kind of opposite i've kind of only just hit the stride everyone was feeling in march of like we're gonna bake bread every day and pick up six (laughs) new hobbies like i finally have hit that stride where i'm like purposely doing new things and making active decisions to do things different but when it first hit it felt really numbing yeah um, and I stopped taking voice lessons because that's something you just have to do in person and is pretty hard to do over Skype. And something about all of it felt incredibly numbing and just kind of like stopped dead in my tracks, which, you know, that gives me pause when it's like a major roadblock. It's kind of a point to reevaluate. And I don't know where I'll kind of go with this afterwards. Um, I, I've made other ideas and dreams and plans that don't involve going to graduate school, but it's also a little bit like how everything will kind of shake out in the intervening years. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, and it's tough too. Like when you spend, even if it's not something that you are 100% invested in or, or like it is, it is the only thing you've ever wanted to do. Like when you spend any amount of time sort of locked into a career path or or pointed in a direction to have that suddenly change i think i'm certainly struggling with it i think a lot of people are struggling with like what does it look like you know what what do i do if this thing that i've been working on for a decade is no longer feasible even it's scary but like you said it it creates this opportunity to sort of reevaluate maybe do you want or need to go to grad school or do you want to have a career in classical music or do you want to which i think pulls into a topic that i really want to talk to you about and and that i think is kind of an ongoing conversation between us and and part of why you know i i want to have you involved in the show because it's it's something that you have really interesting thoughts on and the relationship between one's identity and the place that they hold in the world by choice and by circumstance um, and how that affects the arts that they pursue and the way that they pursue them. Mm-hmm. You talk about, uh, you know, having having violin thrust upon you at, at, at five um, and you and and sort of that expectation to go to school and, and pursue something and, and that being an obvious direction to take it. Um, so I guess let's just start by like having you talk about those ideas. You know how how your own specific identity on every layer um, has 
sort of brought you to this this place? Sure, we could break it down. Um, yeah. So it's weird because I'm sort of in the majority when it comes to classical music in terms of race, right? Like you, th- if you think of a child violinist, you think of a small East Asian child who's way better than you'll ever be at like eight playing it. Um, and it's, I think it's a cultural thing. Um, the the classic story is essentially right that you're told to do it, but you're not allowed to do it as a major. You're not allowed to pursue arts as a major, but it is a great point for your college resume. And it's an important skill to have, um, which is just, huh, interesting. There's, there's, there's a lot there. Um, but it does create this weird environment where you aren't, where you are the majority and for some people, I think the uncomfortable majority where like you're still playing music very much in an old Western European, Western slash European tradition. Um, but the room is mostly, mostly East Asian first generation immigrants. So there's, there's something there. One of the things that you've sort of enlightened me to that I hadn't thought about um, before we really started talking about these things um just because i'm not connected to the world of classical music is the fact that as you said you in so many ways are a majority um you know it it is the people that are learning classical instruments and classical music from a young age who then have the practice that is required to play classical music at anything even approaching a career level skews overwhelmingly non-white and yet you are almost exclusively playing music from Europe from the last like white people yeah 200 300 400 years uh so let's talk about that let's talk about like how is how is that tension sort of played out um and what sorts of things are yeah i i i no i i get what you're getting at and it's um it's treated as stuff that you need to know like you have to understand these basic terms in Italian for instructions on how to play your music. You have to understand the music history of all these old dead European people and like why they're significant to classical music. And it is kind of very much put in this vacuum, but it is also taught as the required pieces of pedagogy. And I think that kind of, I can't speak for it at large, but I, I will attempt to. Um, and it, comes a lot from my experience of being an orchestra musician and just being like a student taking private lessons that there's a lot of um, these really unequal teacher-student relationships that I didn't really realize were unequal until I've kind of moved on later in my life where it's just you're do, you do what you're told, you learn what you're told, you're not really given a choice or allowed to ask why. Um, especially in orchestra in the sense that the music is picked for you, where you end up seating is chosen for you, how you're supposed to act is taught, um, how you're supposed to sit, how you're supposed to play, how you're supposed to move, how you, you know, it's all taught and organized and ordered. And um, maybe that, and it's, and that's part of East Asian culture. I you, I can speak generally, I'm, especially in my experience, like, you do it because you are told to do so. So I think that all ties together with maybe why so many people go into or why people are so successful is 
I mean, if you have the right person telling you exactly what to do to help develop you, mm-hmm. you'll get all the ingredients you need to be what you need to be. But then there's always this inherent bias, right? With then in terms of artistry and what, who is considered a, a true artist, even in the classical music world, because we're all essentially just more often than not just glorified cover artists. So it's what is our interpretation and kind and what, how we are quote unquote able to bring it to life. And I think there is, Inherently, even before we like get to if it's true, just a cultural bias against East Asians of just being robotic and just not having feelings, you know? And part of it might just be in our culture and part of it just might be how we interface with people day to day in, in outside of the home. And so there's there's a lot of, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't thing where we're like good at being the students to to produce kind of the product we need, but will we ever produce the truly exceptional product? That is always in question. And I like, if I even just look at world famous violinists themselves, I, to me off the top of my head, they're majority white by like a vast majority, Mm -hmm. very famous white people. And I can think of three or four East Asian violinists that are a big thing though i think we're maybe that's changing and like it's a a little bit of a delay but we should be seeing the next big hopefully the next round of big superstars are all east asian not not hope but they probably will be (laughs) right it's that issue of like if everyone who's who's entering a thing is of a particular identity like eventually that thing is going to adopt that identity Maybe part of the appeal of classical music and and teaching children how to learn an instrument is because, especially in orchestra or in a, a woodwind band or even in like high school jazz band, like there is that aspect of discipline and control. I think there's this idea that it that it instills like learning how to be part of a group and learning how to have those skills and learning how to, um, you know place the success of everyone above the success of one and and that really appeals to certain communism just kidding but also (laughs) not kidding but you know that 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 appeals to people who want to have their kids sort of grow that skill set um Mm -hmm. for better or for worse right totally a big reason why my parents had us go into band was to like learn that level of discipline too i think and, like, I do want to say, like, as I've taken lessons as I'm older, like, taking lessons with my current voice teacher as I'm kind of pursuing that post-bachelor's, but, like, trying to catch up to being a graduate level, it ha- the onus has been a lot on me, which I've enjoyed and been terrified by in terms of taking the ownership of my artistry and of my development. Even in taking piano lessons um context it it is with a a friend and colleague of mine but he has a just a distinctly different approach to pedagogy where it's it is it's self-driven and it it comes in the context of being adult learner which is just feels like such a dirty term right in many ways right (laughs) right but 
like he he was saying adults are his favorite kind of students to teach because they're motivated themselves like you're not doing this because you're told to your your money is on the line and <laughs> right. you're here because you want to be yeah you're yeah. the one paying the couple hundred dollars <laughs> so you better you better show up for your own fun <laughs> i guess yeah so and it, it it's been refreshing just to do stuff and take complete ownership of it though i do feel like i kind of reached a point in my development where i felt like i was taking ownership of it right or wanting to do it so that was good otherwise i don't think i would have stuck with it successfully (laughs) hey everyone welcome to the break thank you so much for listening this is a project i've been working on for a long time and i'm really excited to share it with you all so uh thanks for stopping by and checking it out and sticking with it I'm sorry if the audio quality sounds a little off. We are working out some kinks around recording interviews over the internet, Um, just trying to keep best practices during the pandemic, Um, but that'll only get better as we go. If you or someone you know is an artist or an art worker and have a topic you'd like to bring to the show, you can email us at meaningwhatpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter our handle is meaning what pod that is m e a n i n g w h a t p o d and finally please take a moment if you can to leave a review on apple podcasts tweet about the show or otherwise spread the word however you can this is a totally independent project with a shoestring budget we don't have much for advertising uh, so every little bit of help we can get from you breaking through the sea of evil algorithms that control everything will be incredibly important All right, I'll let you get back to the show. Thank you again so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. I'm curious to hear you talk about, like, how I think something that we don't talk about enough as a society who wants to have our kids involved in extracurricular activities, whether that be music or sports or whatever, is the development of one's identity and one's experience and like even just what you enjoy as a person the effect that pursuing something that has been chosen for you has on on those things so i i I'd, I'd be interested to hear you talk on um any thoughts you might have on how growing up with this pursuit that was chosen for you um sort of affects your own ideas about like what you enjoy to do and who you are as a person and and the direction that your life is going to take it's made me uh firmly evaluate a sense of ownership and that comes with like the major i chose felt like ownership because it was the only option I had that wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing that I didn't like and wasn't all that great at organic chemistry was never my thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Shocking. I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think I've finally have come into as I become old and decrepit as 25, almost 26. Yeah, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, uh, enjoying things unabashedly and it might come a little bit of my queerness but just enjoying uh, quote-unquote non-high art trashy things but taking them very very seriously I think comes from 
learning to not take things too seriously, you know, like accepting that everything isn't high art or has incredibly high stakes, but um, being a classical musician teaches you a lot of self-analysis and AKA self-hate. So that is always fun to apply that lens to just fun frolicking things with, you know, a certain level of pretension of, well, I am an artist. So, you know, I have this deeper understanding of these things. <laughs> I know myself better than... Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to watch this reality TV and psychoanalyze them or right. this art. Is it art? Well, it's a terrible piece of pop, but how terrible is it? <laughs> <laughs> and this all comes out of a deep self-hatred, but mm. it's part of my identity. Yes. <laughs> So um, you mentioned your your queer identity there. I'm curious to hear you talk about that in relationship to the musical practice that you have. Because, again, it is a genre that is, maybe I'm projecting here, but I believe traditionally understood to be that of a you know particular time in Europe and of a particular people in Europe. Um, and so I am curious to hear, as somebody who who has an identity other than that, what your experience is. And I'm curious to hear how your personal identity is shaping um, your own understanding of, of your practice, but also of the tradition that you are a part of. Yeah. I it, like with instruments, I want to say like, it feels like we can pull gender out, but that's a lie. That's the one of the first things we talked about. It is weird because I appear as a cis male and I didn't come out as queer until kind of college and then after that. Though I did come out as not straight because of orchestras, orchestra tours. So like going, playing an orchestra and going to Europe. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I blamed that. <laughs> that was, was Orchestra that... made me gay, confirmed. Oh, okay. It, it is. That was the thing that did it. Um. Yes. <laughs> um. So therefore, I think I was afforded a lot of privileges of leadership and things that I probably can't identify. I was often a concert master, just because I'm so talented. Um, <laughs> but more often than not, it was because I have a leadership personality and, and a certain amount of aggression. I was going to say, that's a that's a really polite way of, of describing your personality. I like that a lot. <laughs> As you've experienced. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just like, mm, bitch, I'm in charge and right. I think I'm right. Um, so <laughs> I felt like a lot of conductors are like, well, I don't really want to deal with that. So yeah, you can you can play concert master for this piece. Um <laughs> and that's like, and I think that's secretly one of the things I was best at. I'm never most um the most perfect, technically pristine player, but I am a pretty good leader emotionally and physically um so like that that always lended myself well to functioning well in orchestras um but as a singer as a soloist that's a different deal and um as i've explored classical music especially like considering opera uh which unlike unlike one of our future guests um i i hate (laughs) like i don't imagine myself doing opera most likely ever it's probably because just gender roles are so baked into everything you do 
um, especially especially as you figure out your voice type that even more further breaks down what kind of roles you can do. So as a baritone, you're always going to be a dude. Um, and I'm like sort of a lyric baritone, so a little lighter, higher baritone. So you're kind of either the the like second choice guy to get married to or like the dad or the old guy who's a villain. Right. Um, and those are just so traditionally masculine roles and just like baked with so much misogyny and it's just like blah, you know. So I almost at one point and I might consider it just becoming a countertenor just because that affords you more interesting roles of personality. Are you familiar with what a countertenor is? I'm not. I don't I don't think I am. Um in very layman's terms you're singing in falsetto the whole time but in a full operatic way. And that comes out of um especially in the baroque era of music castrati. Um, the superstars, the male superstar singers of the day were beautiful boy sopranos that got their dicks cut off um, so so they could maintain the high voice. And so it creates this interesting situation today in opera where a lot of those roles are pants roles sung by women, usually because countertenors are not often found. They're, they're a pretty rare breed of being and practice so it's a yeah so it's a very interesting thing and so there's there's with that there's like almost inherently this like a little bit of a gender fuck when you see someone present a certain way and the voice comes out that is most definitely not what you'd think would come out which sounds like it could be a really powerful tool for sort of pushing back or or subverting expectations of an audience um But I still feel like you're still playing these things that are still baked with these really traditional roles. And there's only so much subtext you can play with. Like um, one thing I found found out about that I find super fascinating and that was super great was, when did this happen again? Right, early, like mid last year for the Tulsa Opera, Lucia Lucas, who is a trans woman um sang the title role of don giovanni so so she is a rich full-blown baritone and she sang the role of don giovanni who is just don giovanni is basically like a terrible womanizer and then he gets smited by satan at the end so like that there's an inherent inherently something interesting there about a woman being just the worst most horny evil person ever that gets smited at the end but you're still playing this role baked with so much like misogyny and stuff so it's like can we explore more interesting things out there not that there isn't but there's so much um just having to play replay these same 20 operas that just reinforce these really crusty dusty ideas that I don't want to talk about anymore. <laughs> like just those, <laughs> just those rules. Went, went, boring. And um, for like the audition set that I prepared, um, they, basically how it breaks down is they kind of want one piece that fits within each musical period. So there's almost always, there's always, always a contemporary choice, AKA anything after like 1950 that usually should be, will be in English. And so the one 
piece that I ch- was lucky to find. And it was interesting because it just came from modern songs for baritones. Um, was a, a short song uh, called Nemnosine, which is the Greek goddess of memory. And you, you, it was with she, her pronouns. And something about that was like secretly really satisfying to me to be able to kind of play a feminine role but like it was of traditional enough of the ilk in the way it was written and of it being a published piece of music that it kind of I don't know if it really registered with anyone I auditioned for as like ooh, ooh how transgressive of you it's a very subtle subversion of yeah expectation maybe yeah and it's essentially talking about someone and they're this nemnosign and or someone talking about themselves in their most vulnerable moment of not being remembered by someone that is their lover and or someone more sinister than that. Um, so it's just this weird moment of allowing myself to be vulnerable. Yeah. What sort of opportunities or possibilities do you see um, within this musical artistic culture that you're a part of to sort of further those goals and, and, and to maybe if you think this is possible to sort of begin to pull some of the social change that we're seeing um, in the, in the greater world into your own artistic practice and into the areas of that practice that you share with other people. So I'm thinking, and it kind of, wonderfully coincides with like if I had to quote unquote pick a subgenre within the quote unquote classical music world it would be modern contemporary work um that's I think that's one thing I really got out of my UC Davis experience because they have a really big composing faculty and grad program there so I was able to read a lot of new works and perform a lot of new works and I think that is the that is like quite literally the future of classical music, but also just quite literally the most exciting, collaborative, dynamic part of playing an instrument or singing in a a formal, trained way that kind of breaks the traditions of how we've been taught and is more likely to have politics that are more Mm -hmm. forward-looking. And kind of to tie with like my thoughts about well should I do countertenor which I at some point would need to make a decision and just stick to it uh, the, the biggest thing I think of is Akhenaten which is uh, the Egyptian pharaoh and Philip Glass has this opera that he's written for it, and the title of Akhenaten is sung by a countertenor and I went and I know when they did it at the Met most recently they kind of acknowledged that um they found in kind of just exploring Akhenaten's life, right? And like digging through the rubble, they found a lot of images of Akhenaten in in very feminine shapes and forms. And, you know, what could that possibly mean? So in the most recent Met version of that, there, I think like the opening sequence um, is just Akhenaten in the nude, just kind of walking towards you. But there's also these moments where they are, Um, the costuming takes on these feminine shapes and you know that's just something I would be dying to explore Um, and it's interesting because it's by Philip Glass so uh, 
I don't know. It's a something that's a sticking point to me because Philip Glass is all about this minimalism. So it's this kind of idea of repeating one small idea over and over again, and it's subtly shifting. And it's something you kind of have to take in over half an hour to like kind of feel, feel the shape and the intention of what is happening. And I wonder if that's accessible and like who am I to decide or whether or not that is accessible. But like, if I think of just like trying to take a phone out and show it to someone and be like, here, listen to this, like is what is going to be accessible and digestible, but also not only push opera forward in the sense of showing it to a, a, an audience without buy-in, but just also showing that opera and classical music has a way to move forward. Right. Um, but how do we approach that? Especially since a lot of modern music, and I mean music since basically... 1930 40 onwards is kind of moving past the idea of needing keys and melodies that are easily approachable and popular music and music that is um, a shorthand for what everyone knows hasn't moved beyond that necessarily right so there's tension there even in um what is the new and different and daring and finding a, a new audience for it (laughs) <laughs> right. I, I mean, as part of my own artistic practice, one of the one of the biggest tools for me, just as the kind of artist that I am and the kind of person that I am, I benefit immensely from being initially put in a box, right? And and having a specific rule set to work within to then push against and find ways to sort of subvert and move around, especially if that rule set is in some way, something that I don't agree with, right? So I wonder if there's some real opportunity in in looking at the ways that music has solidified, popular music has solidified, and and the ways that our culture looks at music and understands music and understands what is music, and then also understands, like, what is classical music, what is opera, what is, you know, contemporary classical, and finding ways to say... I have this box, this is where I'm at. And then I also have this set of issues that I care about and that I want to talk on. And how can I sort of take these two things and smash them together? But still find an audience. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the audience comes later. Um, <laughs> that's the hard part too, right? Is And and we talk about this um, with a guest later, but there there's an expectation that whatever you do, needs to have an audience and and if you are making something you need to put people in seats and you need to have a guarantee that the class whoever it is who is supporting that practice is going to come out and see it and while that is a really certain way to sort of maintain survival it is a terrible way to grow an audience and it's a terrible way to sort of challenge to yeah. challenge right and 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 to reset or reconstruct bad ideas and and whatever issues have ended up sort of feeling like they're baked into it yeah yeah it feels like classical music takes like 50 60 years to kind of reckon with something and then decide it's okay and cool like the most classic examples right of spring right people were literally getting up in the middle of it walking out and throwing shit at the stage because they're like no 
this is not the thing. And now Rite of Spring is like, I'd say like one of Stravinsky's most programmed thing you'll find orchestras doing. Right. Innovation is, is never well accepted immediately, but that's also kind of the challenge of it too, is, is it's really easy to do something and say, Oh, well, I'm just not playing along. Um, Or is it just shitty? (laughs) Right. Right. Are you really reinventing your genre or did you just make a bad piece. <laughs> Por qué no los dos? Uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, there's a big audience for uh, what's that movie? The Room? Right. Oh, right. God. Um, <laughs> and it teaches us a lot about um, film and, and what we appreciate in film, but also... Did you learn about that in film school? Um, I... In the couple of classes, the handful of classes that I took in film, I think we talked about it in like an editing class. But no, we talked about it in a screenwriting class I took um, uh. and watched some clips from it, um, which is wild because uh, it's a terrible script. Like like every right. every single part of that movie is technically awful. right, just like on a technical like nuts and bolts of the actual process of filmmaking like oh my god what (laughs) which is also why it's fascinating to study because it's like here is this thing that from from the drop is bad and what happens when we look at it from a academic point of view which is a very academic thing to do and sometimes i question the value of that in and of itself as an (laughs) academic but um you know. You're saying what I do in my free time is just academia? How upsetting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we really need to reset that whole thought. You know, uh, we're all doing much more academia than we uh, oh, We think. Great. Any of us who got any sort of degree in undergrad that required any level of critical thinking, mm-hmm. we're academics for the rest of our lives. You know? Oh, no. Um, oh, God. I'm that girl. Oh, great. It's... <laughs> It's not a dirty word. It's okay to be an academic. We need more of it. We just need to not be shitty about it, you know? Oh, too late. No. Yeah. Well, here we are. <laughs> well, I would say thank you for coming on the show, but you are part of the show now. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you exactly had that much choice. I just ingratiated myself to you until you had no other option left. <laughs> I appreciate it. I was tell- I was talking to somebody about it recently. Um and about how the the fact of the matter is that without someone like you on the project, uh, the project will fall apart. I need like I need somebody to be like, uh, hey, is this on your calendar? And um, what are you here? Here is a progress sheet. Please fill this out and please fill these things out by next right. week. Thank you. I need this notarized and, and yes, on stamped. my desk um, at by some noon. point. um so i appreciate that but um also you know just good talking to you about this we are moving forward as listeners will find sean's going to be on on a number of the interviews um we have with other folks uh we're talking to a lot of people he knows personally it's good to have somebody in the room with that connection too we'll also have uh interviews in the future of just sean and i speaking to specific uh issues that that we feel the two of us have some particular insight into thanks for coming on 
Thank you for having me. You'll you're you're all stuck with me for much longer. <laughs> Meaning What is a product of It's No Sam Studios. You can find us on Twitter at MeaningWhatPod or email the show at MeaningWhatPod at gmail.com. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?